And yes, welcome to another episode of Behind the Lens. And yes, it is May the 4th. It is Star Wars Day. One of everyone's favorite days of the year. Um, and I couldn't help but play with my with my lightsaber, courtesy of Disney for Rise of Skywalker. So thank you guys. It's very cool in the dark. It lights up and everything. It has a little laser pointer at the end. But we can listen to Chewbacca anytime we want. And yes, I am just a big kid when Star Wars Day comes around. You picking this up, Pam? <laughs> Pam's playing. I'm playing. Pam's not. Okay. So, we will turn off the lightsaber. Uh, and, again, welcome to Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. And today, a very big kid because it's Star Wars Day. Uh Every week, we go behind the lens and below the line, talking to the movers and shakers of the film and TV makers. And we've got such an eclectic bunch today joining us. Um, Michelle Remsen is back with us again to talk about her film, Toss It. Uh, she's got a, It's had a worldwide streaming over the weekend, and now today, fans of the film are going to be treated to a special Q&A with Michelle this afternoon, so we're going to hear all about that from her. I'm very excited. My, 11th, my guest at the midpoint of the show, Bruce Dellis, writer, director, editor, a new film, Raising Buchanan. It is out tomorrow on all digital platforms. It is fabulous. It is fresh. It's funny. It is charming. It is sweet. It is one of Rene Abergenois's final films. Um, he plays President James Buchanan in a plot that is absurdly funny. And Rene is absolute perfection in the film. And my friend Emmett Walsh is in it. Um, so I, I'm dying to talk to Bruce about the film. And then it's already predetermined. We're going to run... Law. We're running a longer show today uh, because there are a group of guys that I interviewed uh, the other day on Friday. Um, they are hilarious and they have a new web series. Bobby Chase has been with us on the show before for uh, his series Welcome Home, his web series Welcome Home. Well, he's back along with Greg Idala and Mike Feuerstein with a new series to help get us all through life in the time of COVID. Uh, quarantine. Uh, I took an, a, an interview over an hour long and culled it down to the best 15 minutes possible for you all to hear today. Uh, and I am so determined that you're all going to hear that, which is why Pam already said, we're going to run long today just to get in so you guys can hear all about quarantine. Because uh, you need something to laugh at while we're all still on lockdown for all of us here in California, especially in Southern California, we're in week eight now. Uh, in the rest of the country, some are slowly coming out of lockdown. Others are still in full lockdown. Um, so we're at the point now, insanity is getting ready to settle in. And I don't know if there's enough alcohol out there to get us through. Um, which is why we play with lightsabers. Uh, so 
And up, oh, it looks like she's on the phone, isn't she? Well, let's just jump right on in here. And a big welcome, welcome back to Michelle Remsen. Thank you so much, Debbie. <laughs> Lynn and Life. It's lovely to hear you again. <laughs> it's so good to hear from you. So how the heck are you? Um, well, you know, all things considered, I'm very well. <laughs> yeah, I have to tell everybody, this woman helps keep, is helping keep me sane, semi-sane, through the lockdown with her daily, the, her postings of beautiful, beautiful floral pictures, spring springing oh. back in New York on the East Coast. Um, your photos are fabulous. Oh, me too. Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah, and the flowers, it just makes me miss the East Coast so darn much right now. Mm. Uh, <laughs> because there's nothing like watching spring really spring up with all the the bulb flowers uh, blossoming and coming to life. And then the trees, the cherry blossoms, uh, just uh, crab apple trees, just stunning. And your pictures are great. And they make really Oh, thank you. It's been so good for me, too, just to get out every day and walk in the park and get some pictures and try to look at the, you know, the upside to all this. <laughs> but you at least get to walk in a park. We don't get to walk in parks. I know. I know. I'm very grateful that so far New Yorkers have been, you know, uh, behaving themselves as far as keeping distance. And, and um, you know, we have this uh, outlet in, like, uh, California, I know. Yeah, I mean, it's... Chris, you know, don't get me started on that. <laughs> you've seen you've seen enough of my social media post. <laughs> All I know is we need to come off lockdown so we can go to the movies and we can see films. But luckily, in the interim, we can see many of them digitally, including your film, Toss It. This has been a big weekend for Toss It. Yes, I know. It was lovely to have this interview. And then later uh, today, there'll be a Q&A following um, a week-long uh, streaming event for uh, NYWIF, New York Women in Film and Television, uh, who uh, awarded Tossit a uh, marketing promotion grant um, in honor of Nancy Malone, and um, with which I hired um, Annie Dee as the publicist who set up this lovely interview and um, also... Uh, was at Cannes when I had uh, the film there in the Marche, and we did a nice press party, which led ultimately to the distribution deal. So, um, yeah, it was been a big weekend. So we finally get to celebrate, you know, the the, uh, the whole deal, the award, which was supposed to be an actual screening in New York at the Anthology Film Archives, but that all got <laughs> re- rescheduled <laughs> as, oh as everything did. So um, we actually get to kick off NYWIF's virtual screening series, Um this weekend was Toss It, and um, there'll be a live Q&A from 5 to about 5.45 with myself and some of the cast members and the DP and that's, at uh, that's, NYWIST. That's going to be 5 uh, o'clock dot, no, org. Eastern time. Yes. 5 o'clock Eastern, so anybody on the Pacific Coast, 2 p.m. 2 p.m. So after, yes. you, after people listen to Behind the Lens, which will end... At 12 noon, they have time to go and get lunch and then listen and then tune into your Q&A. <laughs> um, same thing applies back in you know. all day. <laughs> so, <laughs> it works so well. Um, <laughs> same thing is same thing on the East Coast. You can have early cocktails before listening to your Q&A. There you go. How where can people tune in to the Q&A 
with you and the cast for Toss It. Um, thank you for mentioning that. Um, at nywift.org, N-Y-W-I-F-T.org. And if you go to the events tab, you'll see the link and you can uh, purchase, I think it's a $5 or $7 ticket, uh, which gets you, if you still want to see the movie, which uh, through uh, NYWIFT, the proceeds go to them. Otherwise, they'll send you a link to watch the Zoom Q&A with the panelists um, at 5 o'clock. And then also people can see the movie any other time on Amazon and Apple and um it's Google all Play it's and it's all Video over. On demand. Yeah, it's all over yeah. on all of the platforms. <laughs> which is one it's one for a film like Toss It and other independent films, um, that is the one that's the blessing in disguise. That's the silver lining to people being on lockdown because you're going crazy and you want to watch stuff and it gives you a chance to see stuff you might not normally be gravitating towards. Yeah. I know. I hope so. I think um, I know a lot of people are looking for new content, and um, you know, Toss It though it was released worldwide in September, it was also up against all of the you know award fair that was released yep. through the fall, and there's the award seasons, and it's hard to uh, you know get eyeballs during all that. And uh, but now that uh, people are looking for new stuff, and with so many festivals either being postponed or a version of them online and nothing new being filmed. People are looking for new things. So hopefully we'll give them a chance to check out um, this film, which, uh, you know, is kind of smart and funny and takes a look at, you know, all the beliefs we think we know. (laughs) Anyway, it might be a good film to sort of chew over. (laughs) It's a perfect film to sit at home maybe with your significant other half, and drink while you watch it. <laughs> yeah, you can get some, get some, uh, get a little buzz on, but also, like, I think there's a lot of food for thought, some meat on the bone to chew over. There really but, uh, is. There really it, is. Because it's very much about, you know, all the traditions and everything, how everything gets, when everything gets tossed, you know, do all those things really work for you? And um, so I guess, you know, it, it's somewhat of a, theme or timely uh, film for the times. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Especially if you're stuck at home in quarantine with somebody and you really want to toss them out and you can't. (laughs) You got to look at this from all perspectives, Michelle. You got to look at this from every angle here. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. I mean, it, it is this film. Our regular listeners know you've been on the show a few times already and we've talked about the film because I just think it's just fabulous. And it is. It's an, an it's an anti-rom-com, but it's so beautifully shot. You've got high production values. You've got a great cast. You're hilarious. Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, it's just got so many great elements and it's very relatable. Especially to the single crowd out there, it's very relatable. And as you said, there is meat on the bones, and it does give you food for thought. Yeah, it was one of those things that I, when I started, I think I've told the story before, like it started as a little one-act play that sort of accidentally evolved into a full play that I then adapted into 
a screenplay because it was the smallest thing I could shoot first to open the door for my larger projects, which hopefully I'll still get to shoot one day. <laughs> but um, uh, this became a sort of an exploration of, you know, all the, you know, the rom-com tradition everyone sort of taught, the, the fairy tales about romance. And um, I kind of looked under the hood and uh, and thought, let's just see what all those prototypes are really about and what made them that way. And, and also the characters, the supporting characters usually fill out those movies. Um, I think I give them a little more dimension and really mm-hmm. try to figure out who, who they are and how. So it's very much an ensemble, even though it's about, you know, a main couple, the the question of will there, won't they, there's, you kind of get to see why. (laughs) Yeah. Why one way or the other. Yeah. Exactly. Because of, you know, who made them that way and all the other dynamics that are going on. And when life hits you unexpectedly, you know, that's when people kind of get real and that's what happens in the movie. Things get tossed. (laughs) (laughs) And actually for all the listeners out there, it's a, this is a perfect film to see. Um, especially if you listen to the show next week with our guest writer-director Jonathan Smith and his film Batshit Bride. Um, <laughs> Chad Miller was already on. He's a, he's a supporting player in Batshit Bride, and Chad was on the other week. And it's a film that's hilarious, and this bride tries to play an April Fool's joke on her fiancé and say, you know what, forget it. Not going to happen. Don't want to marry you. And then he says, oh, I'm so glad you said it because that's really how I feel. Uh, So it kind of plays into along this whole toss it idea um, with huge huge comedic ramifications as she then endeavors to, you know, get him back. And make him realize, no, he really doesn't mean that. And it was really a joke, but mm-hmm. he he's just, no, that's it. Forget it. And he was dead serious. So it's, you know, it's another kind of toss it. Exactly. So you can see two different uh, versions of it if you watch these back to back. And then listen in <laughs> you next week as well. That's just it. You know, I'm always I'm always going to find these these strange pairings there. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, I think it's a great idea. I'd, I'd love to see that film. Oh, I think you would get a, a big kick out of it, knowing your your sensibilities, your cinematic and your comedic sensibilities. I think this is right in your wheelhouse of something that you would get a really big kick out of. It is in my queue now. <laughs> Ooh, yay, yay. But so now, what else have you been working on? Do you have, have you been working on any scripts while you've been oh, yeah. quarantining? Yeah. Do you have, you know, new stuff? Uh, very you... much. Well, I do. I had um, uh, a comedy series, which was what I had been starting to shop before everything sort of ground to a halt. And uh, it's an ensemble comedy series, kind of like about the American dream and how everybody's chasing it and uh, and the search for, you know, a second act. And um, and this group of people kind of get really schooled on, you know, who owns America. So it's a fun uh, NPC, darkly comic <laughs> comedy series. I would love to shoot that next. And then I have a few uh, films that... Um, 
well, I had a second one that I'm actually also was starting to show around, but uh, again, everything's sort of on hold though. I am also working on a, a different adaptation of that because, uh, you know, we've got time to write. And so mm-hmm. I'm definitely taking advantage of that. So that when, you know, the green light is lit, we'll, um, we'll have content that's ready to shoot. Cause I think that's what I'm hearing is that, uh, Outlets are going to want things that are ready to roll once you can. So uh, that's something I've been here. I've been doing a, interviews every day. Uh, I know people if people find that hard to believe, but I have been. I have actually, and publicists will verify, and so will the talent. I'm doing between two and five interviews every single day, uh, and have been through the entire uh, lockdown. And I've been talking to more and mm-hmm. more producers. And even some distributors. And one of the big concerns is that there's nothing in the pipeline. That, that when mm-hmm. theaters open up again, and even streaming content, there's nothing in the pipeline. Um, you know, everybody pre-sells, as you know, like Gravitas or, or a, even A24, Mar Vista. They, a lot of the vertical, they plan things out three and four months down the road not mm-hmm. beyond that. So where is the new content coming from because people are on lockdown unless they have something that they can that's in the editing phase that they can work on at home remotely um there's nothing coming and uh, a couple producers that I that I've spoken with over uh, over the past week as a matter of fact they are really going through all their properties they are looking for uh, Amanda Cook um, who does a lot in horror, she's looking for properties that are ready to go, that might need a little bit of editing, fine-tuning, but ready to go, that she can go to distributors with and mm-hmm. get ready to sell because this is a big concern. Um, yeah, I don't know anything in the can, but I do have projects that I could shoot quickly. I've done yeah. a lot of you know prep work, especially for the series. There's you know a production soundstage that's very interested and I've got location scout and a lot of the key talent that would want to be involved, but you know, we still need to shoot it and, and I do work quickly, but you know, I think it's just going to be tricky for everybody, but hopefully um, if people are, uh, or producers are game to, you know, look at the projects that are really ready to roll and mm-hmm. have, you know, a quick post, um, we might not be, you know, yeah, that, that far, bad you know, off, yeah. There'll be a lag, but there'll be, you know, but I, hopefully we can, um, you know, get some new content up. I mean, there's there's some, you know, great, I mean, there's so many new skills and, and softwares to get um, posts done uh, quickly, rapidly. Yeah. And also, like, the way I shot Toss It, you know, we, we did a lot of it really quickly, especially if people can prep. If we know when we can shoot, um, you can sort of hit the ground running, you mm-hmm. know, as far as... Um, the actual, uh, you know, filming of it. Well, yeah, something I'm curious to see, um, Brian Barsuglia is actually working on a film right now, and he's actually directing it over the Internet. He sent uh, the equipment to each wow. of his actors. He owns his own equipment, so he sent it to each of his actors, and he instructs them via Zoom, or some other platform like that, how to set it up, where to put the lighting, and he's actually directing them remotely. So I'm wow. really <laughs> interested to see how this comes out. 
Really interested to see that because this, this yeah, this takes, uh, I think Timur Bekmambetov is working on something similar as well, uh, directing remotely. Uh, and so I'm really anxious to see where this takes us. Um, you know, then of course, yeah. then of course we have a lot of people that are shooting things in Zoom format, you know, such as, you know, this new web series, Quarantine, uh, the guys that I talked to that I'm going to run their interview, uh, at the end of the show today, um, they're actually, mm -hmm. they wanted to keep being productive. So they've written everything and they have it set up in Zoom as office workers that can only communicate via Zoom now and it's all from their living rooms and you know the foibles of kids running in the background uh, <laughs> somebody caught in flagrante delecto uh, <laughs> yeah, all kinds of fun stuff and they're rapid quick little shorts you know two and a half three and a half minutes you put it together in a nice chunk and you've got yourself a full half hour to an hour um, but you know, they're shooting it all via Zoom with each person on, you know, on a Zoom screen. So I love the innovation that we're seeing come out of yeah. this. Yeah, I totally, I wish some of my projects were amenable to that format. Unfortunately, the ones that I've queued up are, have kind of real production demands and... Um, locations. Locations, <laughs> yeah, that's a big part of, you know... The comedy series location is pretty much a character in the movie, so it makes it really tricky mm -hmm. <laughs> to do it any other way than that. Yeah, I and uh, you know, and I have some bigger scripts. You know, that's a, a global warming sci-fi comedy that I'm actually contemplating maybe doing as an animated film because I don't know. You know, that is certainly something you can't do on Zoom. Uh, no. <laughs> No, you can't. I like the idea of that, a global sci-fi comedy. A global warming. Global warming sci-fi sci comedy. comedy. Yeah. It's a way to um, wrap the medicine in a big brownie. <laughs> but I like the idea that that, that is intriguing, in doing it in animation. Yeah, I have had one or two people mention it, and it, I think it could it could be done that way. Um, something I'll definitely explore, you know, going forward, depending on when or if there's a vaccine, <laughs> you know, what our world looks like in six months. Uh, it better look a lot different than it does now. <laughs> I know. I hope so. I think, you know, we're all feel that way, uh, but we're all waiting on the science. Yeah. I want the restaurants open. I want someone to cook for me. I want to look at a menu and order food, have it cooked, have it served, and have someone else do the dishes. That's not much to ask for, is it? Really? <laughs> I know. We've forgotten. Like, you know, it's very interesting, you know, how different the world felt, everything that we used to take for granted. Oh, it's uh, that's why I'm, I'm also curious to see what kind of scripts or get developed and what comes out. And most of the most of the scripts I'm hearing about guys are writing the, from the guy perspective of being on lockdown and quarantine. I want to see what some female screenwriters are doing. Um, what they come up with as a reflective nature on living through the through the pandemic and lockdown. Uh, because the only, as I said, the only screenwriters and directors that I've 
her talking about writing something specific to this are guys. So I'm I'm interested oh, in I, a female I perspective. I some women who are working on some, uh, you know, quarantine projects here in New York. So um, they'll they'll be out there. I hope so. I hope so, because <laughs> women and men have two totally different perspectives on this situation. <laughs> As we're As they do on most things. <laughs> you know, look, I just want to go to a restaurant and have somebody cook and do the dishes and serve me. <laughs> I'm not, most guys are getting that anyway, so not to be sexist, <laughs> but we know, you know, we know how a lot of that works. But, oh my God. I'm, but I'm so excited for Toss It. I'm so excited for the journey that it's gone on and that it's still going. Yes, thank you. Yeah, it's been a, a fun ride, and I'm so glad uh, Annie Jesus and Matt Grant introduced us. And uh, she was the head of PR for the yep. American Pavilion in Cannes, which was uh, why I did a press party after I did the Marshada film screening, which, as I said, led to uh, the worldwide distribution through uh, journeyman pictures in the UK and uh, and I put it up on all the platforms so now it's available everywhere which was you know I think even for usual indie releases you know it used to be like you'd get New York and LA and then maybe build mm-hmm. out and now the same thing with this was it was everywhere around the world you know, on the same day, which is mm-hmm. a, a fascinating uh, journey, as you said. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and now, coincidentally, hopefully it's a silver lining for smaller films like this, um, that they find uh, new audiences because people are, you know, stuck at home and for films that never got uh, a theatrical release, um, they can now be seen this everywhere, is, this you know, is, yeah. at any time. Uh, rent, buy, or stream, you know, that's the, the beauty of this uh completely digital launch. Mm -hmm. And I personally, you know, it's great that Universal went and they put Trolls World Tour, The Hunt, and Focus with Emma, and they made it, they did the pivot and went from theatrical to uh, streaming at 20 bucks a pop. But for my money, I would rather spend $20 and split it over three small independent films on streaming and watch those rather than the the bigger name title for an opening entree. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, I hope other people feel that way. I mean, you can certainly get it at a fair price on any of those platforms. Oh, it's yeah. also uh, streaming on uh, Amazon Prime. So if you have Prime, then it's free. But um, it is a, a rental or a buy situation on all the other platforms as well. Some people don't have Amazon. So it's... It's nice, and and I think you know with Universal and Trolls. I mean, I think if they were doing what they had to do, and I think yeah. a lot of families with a lot of with kids were grateful to only spend twenty bucks. Oh, yeah, no, that that's you a know. that's a blessing to anyone with kids for families to watch that and only pay twenty dollars. Um, of course, how yeah. many times thereafter do the kids want to rewatch it? That becomes your next problem. Yes. Uh, exactly. That's the, that's the hook, and I guess everybody's just trying to figure out the the landscape right now, and what the demand is, and what's the feasibility and logistics of it all. And I think you know, I think everybody's just sort of tacking with the wind. Well, I think the one thing that everybody can agree on is that movies aren't going anywhere. Movies are ingrained mm-hmm. in the culture around the world. 
We need movies. We want movies. And they will be here long after the pandemic ends. I'm sorry. It's very nice. It's a nice, you know, way to get out of your apartment or your home or wherever you're, you know, sheltering in place to, you know, take these journeys on all these movies. Uh, beside the, the fun stories, it's also a great uh, sort of uh, <clears throat> geographic release. <laughs> yes. And plus, emotionally, you can see movies with people in situations worse than yours. That always makes you feel better. I know it makes me feel better. <laughs> there you go, yeah. The this, people in Tosset, you know, get into some sticky situations they because do. they think they know everything and then they learn a lot along the way, which is why it's a good, fun movie pretty much at any time. But uh, people might enjoy it now as well. Oh, absolutely. And once again, tell everybody where they can tune in, listen in for your Q&A. At 2 o'clock, at 5 oh, o'clock Eastern Time? Alan, at nywif.org, uh, newyorkwomeninfilmandtelevision.org. Uh, on the events page, you'll see a link for Toss It, um, where you can either stream it. But the Q&A is at 5 o'clock, where I'll be interviewed. And then I'll be joined by uh, three of the actresses and uh, the DP and Annie, the, public, the film publicist. Well, oh, we don't need Annie on be there. Blair Ross, yeah. Allison Prasca, and Jenny Zerke as well. Yeah. And uh, we don't need Annie on there. Be... Annie doesn't need to be there. <laughs> <laughs> no, we do because we're going to be talking about it. It was a marketing promotion grant, and Annie was instrumental in I... um, the film getting its deal. So I'm very happy to talk about that because, as much as you know, we love making great film. If you, you can't market it, it, then no one even knows who it's out there. Yeah. So. No, and I know Annie very, was very in, instrumental in this one uh, and through the can, the uh, pavilion at Cannes. So she yeah, is. That she's was so much fun. She's perfect to have on there uh, with you guys. But, you know, I can bust on her because she's my friend. So, you know, <laughs> we, got, we got to be able to pick on her sometime. But, well, I'm going okay, to. But not today. She's been a champion of the film. I know. I know. So I'm going to let you go. I have Bruce Dellis, writer, director, and editor of Raising Buchanan on the other line. But everybody can listen to you on your Q&A today, 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific, at nywift.org. Click on events, pay five bucks, and have a ball. And then go watch Toss It. <laughs> Thank you so much, Debbie. Such a pleasure talking with you again. Oh, Stay safe and healthy. You too, and I'll talk to you soon. Cool. Bye-bye. And that was Michelle Remsen, writer, director, producer of Toss It. She is so much fun, and the cast of the film of Toss It is so wonderful. Uh, and it's a real treat. You're going to get, the, and the cinematographer will be participating in that Q&A as well. Um, so I really recommend, if you're looking for something to do this afternoon, log on and uh, participate in that Q&A. And right now, I'm very excited, very happy to welcome writer, director, editor Bruce Dellis to talk about Raising Buchanan. Hi, Bruce. Hi, Debbie. How are you doing? I'm so happy to talk to you. I love Raising Buchanan so much. Oh, great. Glad to hear it. <laughs> oh, my God. I, this is watching Renee... Uh, in the role of President James Buchanan, yeah. I, I, I adored Renee, um, such a special man, and I know his yeah. his son and his daughter-in-law um, 
and they're just all so lovely. And uh, this is one of his final performances, and I can't think of a more perfect casting and a more perfect quote unquote send off to this. I think so to too, legend. because he is one of those guys that uh, I think most people who watch films or television to any degree or go to the theater, they know this guy. Yeah. And they might not know how to pronounce his name, but they certainly know uh, Rene Aubergenois. So um, it was great to have him come on board because he's been such an instrumental guy. For anybody who's my age and has been watching films for a while, uh-huh. this guy is just somebody that you always know is going to give a quality performance. So we were thrilled to get him. And, of course, you know, once you see him in the film, oh. you just can't imagine any, anybody else in that no. role. He's fantastic. He is perfection as James Buchanan. Um, I, I, you just think about what he's done, the generations that have seen him, you know, from his work in The Patriot with Mel Gibson. Yeah. Uh, star, as Odo's in, uh, Odo in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Yeah, that's, uh, a, that's a leap. That's a big, big, big leap. And then, of course, the fact that he was in his son Remy's film, Bloodstripe, a couple years ago. I, yeah, I watched that film. Oh, That's a really good film. Is it's that, really strong performances. And oh, my God. And is an excellent director. Remy's fabulous. And that script and Kate's performance, Kate Nolan's performance. Yeah. Is, She's fantastic. It, and that that's one of the few films that we sit, that we have seen out there over the years from the female perspective as a female veteran returning from war. Yeah. Um, so, and then there, Renee's character so instrumental as this calm, quiet, somewhat untraditional pastor with words, yes. of, uh, words of comfort and wisdom. And yeah, very fitting because it, it does seem like he embodies those things in, in real life. He just seems to be uh, something of a free spirit, but such a calming, kind mm-hmm. man. Um, just, yeah, it, ideal role for him. And we see him, this is what he brings to the character of President James Buchanan in Raising Buchanan. Yeah. Um, first of all, Bruce, where did the idea for this film <laughs> arise? Of all things, in this day and age, particularly, yeah, because um, yeah. the history books are going to um, get changed after this. I'm sure. Um, yeah, the, I think you're right. The worst president in U.S. history, James Buchanan. Oh my God! Where? Why? Why? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, basically, the uh, producer and and the lead actor in this thing is Amanda Melby, uh, and uh, and we talked about this about working together on something for quite a long time, and kind of hit upon this finally uh, when we decided we were going to actually press ahead with something. I pr- I pitched a, a few things to her, and this is the thing that resonated with her most, um, and the idea was basically. Uh, coming from the idea that there have been some historical uh, presidential body stealing, uh, you know, kidnapping, if you want to call it that, um, through history. I mean, obviously, uh, Abraham Lincoln's body, there was a big plot to steal his body, but of course that didn't go very far. It wasn't very well thought out and never really made it out of the crypt. But back in 1991, uh, Zachary Taylor, uh, one of our presidents, was dug up because they wanted to determine, his family wanted to determine whether or not he'd been poisoned mm-hmm. or not. Um, and when they dug him up, it occurred to me uh, that, wow, that he's out in the open. People could just steal that body and ransom him back. And then I thought, well, wait a minute. This is Zachary Taylor. I mean, really, who's going to be that excited about uh, getting his body back? Right. So that was kind of the impetus for, for the oh plot of uh, Raising Buchanan. 
And what led you to pick poor James Buchanan? <laughs> well, a couple of reasons. One is that he is uh, kind of a consensus pick um, prior to the 2016 election, the, the consensus pick for worst president of all time, uh, and and rightfully so. It wasn't like he's been railroaded over the years and, and people are looking at him in right. a different light and it's unfair. Uh, I think that's a probably pretty fair assessment that he was our, our worst president up till our recent days. So we went ahead and, uh, and did that. And also the idea that because he was never married and had no children, um, it would be really difficult to get family members to been out of shape about uh, mm-hmm. having some fun with President Buchanan. Of course, any other presidents that you might choose, that might be the oh. single point of pride for those uh, surviving family members. And, you know, it might hurt some feelings. And this just seemed like an easy way of, of dealing with somebody who was a bad president, didn't have any family, and was also on paper, should have been a fantastic president. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been no president in our history that's had such a good resume going into the presidency in terms of all the offices that he served and yes. all the experience that he brought with him. And for a, a person of that uh, caliber to fail so badly really kind of uh, highlighted the, the problems with our lead character, um, Ruth, who also, like him, had uh, a path to some, some really, good, uh, really good life ahead and got kind of derailed at one point and, um, and has never really kind of recovered from it. So it was a good good way to mirror that. Well, um, what I love about uh, the way you have written this, the dialogue, uh, especially with Buchanan, we learn some history here. Anybody that doesn't yeah. know anything about Buchanan, you have actual history in here. And to listen to Renee in character as the quote-unquote ghost of Buchanan who only Ruth can see, as she has a myriad of conversations with throughout the film, yeah. he try he explains his background. He explains his intent um, going into the presidency. He also understands and accepts how he's been viewed since, and acknowledges uh, acknowledges his shortcomings. And that's something that we never really have the benefit of even with living former presidents. So to see this written the way you have done this and constructed it, I just, I'm so enamored with that and so impressed by that objectivity and that analysis, that essential self-analysis that you insert in there. And it really makes you think. That seemed pretty important to make sure that that was kind of coming across because rather than than this being a, you know, otherworldly or magical figure, this is kind of uh, Ruth's, um, the manifestation she has in her head about, as she's learning about the president, um, conversations that she has with him and questions that she has. So, so some of those are coming from obviously him because he needs to be portrayed as a, you know, three-dimensional uh, actual character mm-hmm. and not some, uh, yeah, just not some um, programmed um, visible person to her. It needs to kind of go beyond that and give give, give more dimension to it. Yeah. So it was critical that that he did have that kind of self-realization. Whereas uh, Buchanan, in his real life, never really uh, came to grips with that part of his uh, his uh, legacy. Mm-hmm. Did you? What kind of research did you do in order to get the factual aspects of Buchanan correct? 
Well, I, there's not a... Not Thankfully, a lot. there's not a ton of um, <laughs> Buchanan books out there. You know, very often you'll find Abraham Lincoln and some of the other guys, but uh, but there's not a whole lot. So I did read all the books that I could find on him, and uh, and certainly um, I'm kind of a uh, history nerd anyway. So I I knew a lot of the the basic foundational stuff. So it was really just a matter of kind of digging into those aspects that I thought would really help serve the the film and and fleshing those out a bit. And then, and then you bring you've you've brought Buchanan to life, and through Buchanan, Ruth comes to life, and we see her flaws. We also see you know the positives, the assets that she has in her life, and some of the greatest assets that she has are the characters that you surround her with. Her her BFF Meg, beautifully played by Kathy Shem. Yeah. Uh, and her parole officer, Terrence Bernie Hines, <laughs> is a scream. He's he, great. Especially He's great. we get to the third act and you've got a twist in there. And as she's going, what, what, oh my God, and the, and the jaw is dropping and the eyes are getting wider. You're doing the same thing as you're watching this. Um, <laughs> he conveys this so perfectly. Um, very, and then you've got Steve Briscoe in there as bizarre ventriloquist. Yeah. Um, Errol, just and everybody is so fully fleshed out. And of course, and of course, Ruth's dad, played by my good friend Emmett Walsh. Um, oh, Emmett, yeah. Uh, I, He's a great guy. Emmett and I have known each other thirty years, about thirty years. Oh wow. Okay. Um. Yes. Yes. Yeah, we were very fortunate to to get Emmett. He was another one of those, He's you know, tough. you can kind of ca- tell by how we cast this thing that character actors are are a big deal yeah. for us. And of course, he's another one like Renee who uh who is everybody knows this guy and and several a lot of people know his name as well, but um but he's one of those faces that uh almost no matter how old you are, he has been a working force for uh for everyone's entire life almost. Yeah. Uh, it's it's kind of alarming. You watch just about any movie on TCM that comes from about 1968 or 69 on, and there's a good chance Emmett's going to be in there. Yep. Yeah, and he's done Disney, Odd Life of Timothy Green. He was just in Knives Out. Yeah, um, yeah. And then he does voicing Pound Puppies and all kinds of cartoon voices. I think he even got an Emmy nomination for Pound Puppies. But, yeah, I think he think he may have. But and he actually worked on worked with Renee, I believe, on that yes. uh, show as well. Um, there was a time when I, I think you probably re- realized that uh, that Emmett is kind of known um, when he goes to a film set. He came out early uh, and and kind of hung around the set and talked mm-hmm. with folks and so forth. And he's got a million stories, as you know. But he also hands out. Uh, pennies from 1943, yes, he which is the time when we, we weren't manufacturing the copper pennies, we were doing the steel. And so he collects those up and hands yeah. them out to people that he meets. Mm-hmm. And we were fortunate enough to be able to work with both of these guys, but um, but Renee had to leave. His 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 He was wrapped by the time uh, Emmett came along. Mm-hmm. And one of the last things he said was, next time you see, as soon as Emmett shows up, just tell him I still have my penny. <laughs> I I can't tell you how many pennies of the steel pennies I have that Emmett has given me <laughs> over the years, and two dollar bills. That's his other big thing. Yes. two dollar yeah, bills. Yeah, I got one of those too. It's hanging on my wall right now. It's any time that that we meet up at the local at the local establishment, uh, and he orders his coke, and he always 
$2 bill. Tips a $2 <laughs> bill. $2 yeah, bill. Yeah, that was his first thing with uh, uh, Joe Gruberman, our producer, picked him up at the airport. And the first thing that he wanted to do was go to a bank. He had to get to a bank so he could get a bunch of $2 bills. Yeah. He's never without them. Yeah. Uh, but it's, uh, and the other thing he's also, Emmett's also never without, he always carries a, a, cur- a relatively current resume folded up in his wallet. So when people ask him, well, what have you been in? He likes to whip the thing out and show <laughs> it to them. Uh, I, st- I have one, a copy that he gave me probably 20, at least 25 years ago. I oh, wow. S- and I actually still have it folded up in my purse after all these years. Wow. Well, one thing, I, I haven't really told many people this, but I, we, me and my wife did this thing for my daughter when she was born. She's now 22. But we thought, until she's 18, we're going to keep this a secret from her. But we had reached out to hundreds of politicians and actors and singers and stuff of the time, just ba- basically explaining that we were going to give my daughter a scrapbook mm-hmm. uh, with little happy birthday wishes over the years from all of these folks. And, and one of the mm-hmm. people that I reached out to was Emmett. This was, you know, years and years Aww. before we did the film. And so he sent me three different autographed pictures saying happy birthday to Devaney, plus Aww. one of his resumes. So, yeah, <laughs> I got one too. Look at that. Six degrees of separation. Only That's separated right. by one. That's right. We're almost related. <laughs> yes, almost. But, you know, talk to me about you. You really enrich this film with these character actors that you bring in. How difficult was it finding the right mesh? Because the chemistry here is truly so important. Um, yes. When, especially when it comes to... What I love with Emmett's character playing Ruth's dad, we see a softer side of him that we don't normally see. Uh, he normally has more crotchety roles, shall we yeah. say, mm-hmm. or unsavory ones. Uh, but so here we see something softer from him. Uh, but then we get a character like uh, Ruth's other BFF. In addition to Meg, there's Holly, played by Jennifer Fallsgraf. and. Yeah. Then you've got Steve Briscoe stepping in as strange ventriloquist Errol, who has a shady side <laughs> of his own. This, all of these moving parts really have to work in this film to pull off the absurdity of hijacking, stealing, holding for ransom the, the corpse of a dead president. Exactly, and that was that was critical for us is to make sure that uh, that we did have that uh, that everybody understood the tone. That was you know you always hear that a lot of directing is just casting it right, and that's really the case. As long as you cast people who understand really what you're trying to do and the tone you're going for, because you're right, this could have easily spun out of control and been just a wacky, um, over the top yeah. farce. Uh, but we really wanted to keep it as grounded as possible so that nobody in the film realized they were being funny at all. Mm-hmm. Everybody needs to act like this is a real serious thing that they're dealing with here that they could go to jail for. So they need to take it as seriously as they can and just allow the kind of the ludicrous aspect of the of the plot to sort of carry along the, the strange aspect. But if everybody's kind of playing it straight, like they don't realize that it's as strange as it really is, I think it really helps buoy the comedy quite a bit. And, and uh, having, having those character actors is, is crucial. Having somebody like Kathy Shim, who's oh. just fantastic, <laughs> and 
really, really smart. You can, you can tell, maybe not through her character, but she gets it. And she built a whole backstory for her character, as did Jennifer Fallsgraf. Um, and, but anytime we got somebody like, uh, you know, Terrence Bernie Hines um, has kind of a really difficult role. Yes. Because he has to anchor the entire film. He is kind of the entree, like the, uh, the, the audience is going to be represented a little bit by him because he's a grounded, normal person. And if we don't have anybody who's more of a normal, grounded person who gets dragged into this, it will... Uh, it, it'll feel untethered a little bit. So I think Terrence had a, had, a, had a tougher role than a lot of people might originally see. But he's certainly up to the challenge and has the warmth that that character needed so that people were kind of on board with him. So uh, couldn't, couldn't be happier with Terrence. You know, and it lets having the, the strength of all of these supporting players really it gives um, Amanda a chance is the character of Ruth. That if somebody is really going to come across as not realizing the, the full ramifications of what she's doing, she can get away with that because everybody else is like, are you insane? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so it lets her have more disbelief that what she's doing is horrible because she's rationalizing the, you know, the horrible nature of what she's doing, of what she's doing with well, you know, nobody cares. He was Amer- he was America's worst worst president. Nobody's going to miss him, but they'll pay money to get him back. Um, and yeah. it, it, and she keeps lowering her ransom amount, which is just <laughs> <laughs> just got to do that sometimes, just to negotiate. It, it, it just, but yeah, she she does have a, a quality, and that's really Amanda kind of coming across. Very often, Amanda's cast because of the, just the way and the, her her carriage and the way that she looks she's mm-hmm. she's a lot of the sweet girl next door and the and the nice mom yeah. and stuff like that but i've seen her do plays where she has murdered all of her children and she can get very very dark mm-hmm. so i knew that she had much more range than probably a lot of people uh recognized so it was like well what can we do to not tap into that sweet mom next door thing because she has an innate goodness that that can still shine through even though she's doing some pretty despicable things and uh and she was up to the challenge and was in every scene except for one so she really had to carry this thing on her mm-hmm. shoulders now and of course she's also an executive producer on the film too yes so you know she's got a lot invested in her performance and in the mesh of all of the elements here yeah and she really did need to uh to figure out a way to not wear that producer hat because even beyond executive producing she was actually uh you know a producer right up to the point where we started shooting yeah, and then on the joe ground. kind of uh, even though joe was doing pre-production and post-production uh during production joe really needed to kind of take that off of her plate so she could focus on her on her performance um but but she has been kind of the driving force for all of this uh, since the very beginning. So, yeah, she had a lot invested in this, uh, in those terms. And, of course, you'd worked with her before on uh, Locker 13. Yes. Uh, th- yeah, that was a, a, an anthology thing. Right, and you had and, one uh, of the segments. I, didn't, I wasn't the one who directed her in her segment, but we'd worked together a few times, and we've known each other over the years. Mm-hmm. She has just been so busy doing other things, and she runs an acting studio, and for a long time she essentially ran the uh, local film uh, society and so forth uh, in Phoenix, uh, just trying to get things accomplished. So she was always somebody that I've always had my eye on in terms of not only their talent in acting, but just how organized and, and frankly, just how kind she is. It's a, it's a huge deal to work with people who are nice people. 
talk to me about your cinematographer, Brett Kalmbach, um, and how you design the visual, the, your visual tonal bandwidth here. You keep everything light. You've got nice color balance here, a little bit saturated that, mm-hmm. that fits well with the absurdity of, of the story. But the fact that you keep your tone, your visual tone, light, both in the lighting and in the tone itself, is so key with this story and with this structure. So I'm curious how the two of you went about developing the look that you have and then your very, very judicious use of close-ups. You really try <laughs> and you make this inclusive with multiple people and you never real you don't zoom in on, on eyeballs and things like that. You really let us, let body language come into play with capturing uh reaction and reaction in the same shot so i'm curious how the two of you came up with this yeah um and thank you for noticing that stuff most people don't care that much about that stuff but it's a huge deal obviously but uh brett is one of those guys uh who's been working around town here for a while. I'd never worked with him before, but when we were trying to put together who we wanted for crew, I remember seeing several films that he was the DP for, and it was really one of those situations where you look around and say, I think he might be the best guy in town. Let's see if he's willing to do it. And thankfully he was, and thankfully he was a really nice guy and a really creative guy. And so it was really easy to work with him just in terms of how we wanted this to look. And he takes all of those things that you just mentioned very seriously, too, um, trying to get the, you know, the light and the color right. And mm-hmm. even, even things in terms of, you know, when is the camera moving and, and laying it all out on a grid saying, let's make sure there's a balance to what we're doing here. And it was just fascinating to see the things that he kind of goes through. We had a color palette that we had looked at several films um, where we were trying to figure out kind of what we were going for. And he was instrumental in putting together these color charts and, and, and figuring all this stuff out. So going into it, before we shot a thing, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of decisions that had already been made, not the least of which was the, just the, the tone of it. We wanted to make sure that we had kind of that uh, sort of handheld feel throughout the film mm-hmm. until there are shots that include James Buchanan. And then we locked the camera down. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was something that when we talked about it early on, we wanted to have something that distinguishes those scenes from the other scenes, but in more of a subtle way. And I think that was one of the ideas Brett had come up with in terms of uh, how we could uh, differentiate those those, uh, styles. Well, I noticed that, and I love that because that's really just happening in Ruth's mind. So there's not going to be any outside influences um, when Buchanan is in conversation with her, uh, it's yeah. You may see him going in the refrigerator and getting an apple out, or or laying there and and playing with a little soldier, a little or not a soldier, but a little wooden president uh, yeah. from, from a hall of of handmade presidents. But there's no outside interference. So I love the the stationary aspect of those scenes because good, it good. keeps it it you know subconsciously it keeps you in her mind in her experience and then when you transition out of them with somebody calling her name or it's like Ruth what do you think or and seamless we go seamlessly she may blink 
but then it's seamlessly back into the real world. Yeah, yeah, because, yeah, it, it certainly didn't need to be a trance-like state or some right. otherworldly influence. It just kind of needs to be what's happening in her head in, in kind of a stream of consciousness sort of thinking. So shifting gears like that, you shouldn't be a, a, a radical departure. It should be pretty subtle. Yeah, and I, it was very seamless, and that happens, you know, every time we've had a Ruth Buchanan exchange, and it just works so well. Uh, oh, thanks. And it is, it's, dare I say, it's pleasant to see that. It's pleasant <laughs> to watch that. It's not jarring. It doesn't all of a sudden take you as a viewer out of that moment. Yeah, yeah, and that's what it, that's what it kind of should do. It should mm -hmm. feel like it flows, so it doesn't uh, it doesn't feel as episodic and jarring as if we are going in and out of certain states of mind. It really should not feel that way. There's there's an element of that to it, but it certainly doesn't need to jar the viewer in that same way. And of course, then you did let everybody get in their side eyes every time they mentioned, yeah, he's the worst pre <laughs> president in the United States till now, and yeah. it's you can't help but laugh. It's a knowing laugh. It's a knowing nod. Um, and it just adds a little something extra. Yeah, I, I think so. And it was something that, you know, it almost feels like there's a responsibility on our part to some degree. If we're making a film about what we're claiming is the worst president of the United States and it's coming out in 2019, um, you know, I, I have a child. <laughs> I, feel, yeah. I, I feel a little responsibility <laughs> to keep that caveat in place and just make sure that, you know, I, I don't want to speak for the entire production by any means, but I, I honestly feel I'm kind of a, a presidential nerd guy as far as that stuff goes, and it seems pretty obvious that uh, we currently have somebody who's going to be considered objectively uh, the worst president. And it has nothing to do with whether he's a Republican or a Democrat. It just has to do with right. the kind of person, human being that he is. So, um, so hopefully people don't look at it as it's as much of a political thing when we do that. Yeah. And uh, and frankly, we just felt like we needed to do something without you know calling anybody necessarily by name. Mm -hmm. But it's very clear from the screenings that we've had that. People get it. People they laugh. people understand it gets it gets <laughs> it gets laughs every time. So that's a, that's a plus. Yeah, what was this this is your first full feature, correct? Directing? Yeah, that's true. What because I know you've done a lot of shorts. Um in fact, your first short involved Lincoln. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you are a presidential nerd. Uh <laughs> And and I and I wrote a feature film that uh that featured uh James Garfield uh as a um vampire basically so okay. yeah well james garfield is fine but every anybody who doesn't know who james garfield is they need to go back and watch some diehard movies there's james garfield chester garfield so <laughs> there you go um you will learn you learn much from films people yes you um, do but what was this learning curve like for you making the leap to feature film directing and editing, because that in and of itself, the fact you're editing and directing, I'm curious whether on this bigger scale of a feature, is that advantageous as a director? Were you able to circumvent and shortcut in your mind's eye, knowing you're going to be cutting uh, at the end? So I'm curious about that yeah. process. That has a that has a lot to do with it, what you just mentioned. is it, It's helpful. It's helpful and it's harmful 
to, to be the editor on something like this. Ideally, I think in an ideal world, I'd, I'd lock up with somebody who's, who's editing I kind of trust in terms of this kind of comedy. Um, I just, we didn't have the, the, the time or the resources to really uh, beat the bushes to see if we could find the right person for that. And I pretty much edited all the other stuff that I've done before. Um, but it does help in direction. If you, if you know that, okay, we're, we're getting this scene, we're getting this over the shoulder, there's no way I'm going to get that, the line from that character uh, from this angle. So as long as we get through it, if, if that line gets muffed, I'm not worried about it because it's simple enough to, I'm going to get on over somebody else's shoulder anyway. So there are those kind of things, or if there's a longer speech that I know is going to be cut in half, uh, you can think of the speeches in two, uh, two chunks. But of course, when there's things like at the beginning of this film, there's a very long speech that Renee has to give as James mm-hmm. Buchanan that we uh, had always intended to get in one take. So that was... Those are the things where, from an editing standpoint, you just have to know that's all going to be done in one take so that right. you can get uh, one complete version. Because otherwise it's like, well, half of it worked well, and then the other half worked well in this other take. We'll just, we'll just uh, splice those together. And, and the reality is that was not the way that shot was intended to be. So, so poor Renee had to, had to pour through that long speech. Oh. Uh, which he was kind of concerned about, but he he nailed it more than once. So we had kind of an embarrassment of riches in terms of trying to figure out which take to use because he was he was he was on it. I can't imagine him being concerned about doing it again because he is known for some exquisite monologues that he has done over the years. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I, I, and and he was he was kind of concerned probably more because of his age. He had he had mentioned the very first time. Uh, Amanda and I spoke with him on the phone. He was he was concerned that uh, uh, he was getting a little long in tooth and uh, and his memory wasn't what it was. And he recalled a story when he was on Broadway working with Catherine Hepburn of all people oh in God. a play where Renee won the Tony that year. Um, and 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 uh, Catherine Hepburn had told him that uh, she needed to bow out of the production because she has a different production coming up in six months. And Renee just said, well, well, you got six months? Why do you need six months? And she said, when you get to be my age, you'll know that it takes a long time to do this. And he said, and I'm right now exactly as old as Catherine Hepburn was oh when she told God. me that. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, but he, he nailed it. He was, he was fantastic. And he got the character, and he brought yeah. that, that empathy. It really would have been easy to just be this unctuous uh, snappy, defensive guy, and he brought so much humanity to it yeah. uh, while still maintaining some of those aspects. Very nuanced performance. I oh. thought he was fantastic. Yeah, he is. He is perfection in, in the role. Absolute perfection. Now, a big part of this film is the fact it's shot in Arizona. Yeah. Um, not the typical place you would think of this, you know, somebody steals a body. Yeah, it's buried in Pennsylvania. Let's stay in Pennsylvania. <laughs> no, we've we we move it across two thousand miles across country, and this is all taking place in Arizona. And you make Arizona become a very important part. You really weave it into the story with the locale, with the little local shops, then with the wooded forest area. Um, yeah. Why? Why Arizona and the importance of integrating that whole region and that community into this film. 
Well, part of it was just the, the logistical uh, reality of us living here in Arizona. But when we, uh, Amanda and I first talked about making a feature film, it was really critical that it was a film that we could make here in Arizona, mm-hmm. um, that, that, that it would uh, hold the story up in a, in a proper way, and, uh, and that we could highlight some of the um, unique uh, things that people don't think about with Arizona. They just think of desert, but we do have more urban areas. We have the suburbs. We, you know, we're able to use a lot of different locations, um, you know, buildings, stores, restaurants, uh, places that um, probably if you were to shoot this film in L.A. or something, they've, they've become so uh, kind of jaundiced towards the whole idea of having a, a production company come in and do stuff that, it, you know, it, it doesn't, the novelty is clearly worn off. But here in Arizona, people are really eager to help out. It's like, oh, I can I can participate in this filming. Fantastic. So, you know, places like a, going to a Dairy Queen or a or a dive bar in in Tempe, you know, you can or a library, you can just go in and talk to these folks, and they said, you know, get permissions that they need and and allow us to go on in there and do it, and they're excited to have us in there. And I don't know that you could find that. Uh, in other places, and we didn't have a huge budget where we could, you know, shut things down and and uh, pay for too much. So, and and we have you know things outside the desert. We went up north, just drove a couple of hours, and we're up in the pines. It's it, people don't think of Arizona that way, but but we there's a lot of different environments here, and uh, and we're trying to kind of boost that that recognizable mm-hmm. element that uh, that might be appealing to production companies that might not want to fly directly over us to New Mexico. There's there's places to do it here. We don't have a tax incentive, which is sad, but yeah. um, but that's the reality. But uh, but we do have those same uh, vistas and so forth that people find very appealing, and we'd like to kind of encourage more production companies to come out. So now at the end of the day, now that tomorrow everyone can see Raising Buchanan on every platform known to mankind. <laughs> that's uh, right. I mean, you're, you're Google Play, Vimeo, YouTube, iTunes, Amazon Prime, Voodoo. Uh, you t- the only place you aren't is in theaters, um, and that's because they're <laughs> closed. Uh, but now, now that you're at this point of your journey, what have you learned about yourself as a filmmaker that you can now take with this project that you can now take forward into future projects? Well, probably the main thing that I that I've learned personally is the idea that, you know, when you're doing short films and there's no real hope of any real commercial um, bang for your buck in those terms, you can do whatever you want to do. And, and I have a very specific, I think, uh, sense of humor, the things that I find funny. And I don't have to think about those at all when I'm doing short films. But if you are asking people to invest in a feature film mm-hmm. where part of the goal is to make sure that they get their money back so that hopefully we, we can move on and, and make another film, <laughs> yeah. there are some considerations that you probably need to think. And, and luckily, um, that was never really uh, pushed on me at all. Um, Joe and Amanda, as producers, were very um, open to the idea of doing the film that we had set out to do in the beginning without making these compromises that would make things overly commercial and kind of trusted the process. And uh, and that was the kind of thing where I wasn't really sure whether that was, you know, yeah, it works for short films and, and people like them and all, but there's not, uh, there's not so much hanging in the balance. 
So it did kind of show me that, okay, there is a place in the world for a, a weird tale, and there is a, a place in the world for in, instilling some uh, American history into this stuff where it doesn't feel like you're, you know, you're banging the, the podium trying to get people to, to learn this stuff. You know, it's, uh, you, can, you can assume that people, if they don't know who James Buchanan is, which you have to assume most people don't know who he True. is. True. Um, you don't need to spend a whole lot of time dwelling on explaining everything. People are savvy enough to kind of pick up on that stuff. And even if they're not, they can, they can follow the story along on a surface level and hopefully still really enjoy it. But it did kind of paint it out in my eyes as, hey, this, this whole thing is possible. It's not just a pie in the sky. Boy, if I had my way, this would be a lot better. You know, this is less theoretical and more uh, practical now that that I you know the stuff that I think is is funny or is good uh, has some has some value so that was very encouraging for me. Uh, well, I can't wait to see what you do next, Bruce. I am in love with this film. Uh, I am going. I will be watching it again. Uh, <laughs> good, good. Well, I also have to be able to pick on Emmett about it. So, and I haven't <laughs> been able to see him because of the quarantine. Um, hopefully he is yeah. ensconced in his house giving away free weeds to people, um, <laughs> which, yes, he has, actually has a sign on his lawn that says free weeds. Um, <laughs> Why does that not surprise <laughs> yeah, I, I know, I know. But, oh, I can't thank you enough, Bruce. This has been an absolute joy. And I, I seriously, I cannot wait to see what you come up with next. Um, <laughs> well, we'll certainly stay in touch and, and, and let oh. you know. Absolutely, and you have to come back on the show again. Uh, Love to. This is a pure delight. Bruce, thank you so, so much. And everybody can see Raising Buchanan tomorrow. Yay! Yay! Thank you, Bruce. (laughs) All right, Debbie, thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. And that was writer, director, editor Bruce Dellis talking about the very funny Raising Buchanan, which you can see tomorrow. Um. And now, because we're in extended mode today, we are going to shift. The force, the comedy force is definitely with us today. From Michelle's film of Toss It to Bruce's Raising Buchanan. Now we're going to switch gears to the very, very hilarious new little web series, uh, Quarantine, from this very creative trio of Bobby Chase, Greg Idala, and Mike Furstein. The premise is the Bork and Hitchens Advertising Agency are a quote-unquote motley crew who navigate the glitches and sparks of working from home during the worldwide pandemic quarantine. Um, it, it It's just hilarious. You've got episodes that are gas leak, which does not deal with gas in the traditional sense. Think bodily functions, water coolers, um, lag, man from Chassamusets, a high maintenance client. Um, and I can't, they're in the process. I think the boys were editing. Mike was editing uh, two more episodes, I think, tonight that are dropping. Uh, you can find Quarantine on YouTube. Uh, just Google Quarantine, Facebook, YouTube. But I had a chance to talk to this riotous bunch uh, the other day. So without any further ado, here is over an hour of interview called down to 14 and, at minutes and 47 seconds of some of the highlights about the making of and the laughter of 
quarantine. Thank God we have you guys making really funny things for us. What a fun conversation, huh? Yeah. That was good talking to you. We'll talk to you later. (laughs) (laughs) Thank God, you know, because I've watched all the stuff. I watched the the videos that you guys started with. I think you started with first, first, Bobby, the canceled corona commercials which i yeah. i just cracked up every single one sounds like matthew mcconaughey um <laughs> and then you get into you know your adam sandler parody and greg i gotta tell you playing al pacino you're hilarious oh thank you appreciate that but you know i look at those and then i look at now the series the cohesive series of quarantine oh my god using this zoom premise guys this is fabulous. Fabulous. Thank you. Thank you. Who came up with this idea for quarantine and and playing with the whole Zoom feature? Well, I, I, um, Mike here, I, I pitched it to the guys and, and uh, we all liked the idea and we, we kind of went forward with it together. Um, just kind of, you know, I, I was on a Zoom call myself and just watching all the screens and everyone kind of doing their own thing, trying to figure out the camera, figure out the sound, taping their feet, uh, getting their eyeballs too close to the lens. And I just, I was cracking up. And I thought, wow, there's something here. <laughs> so. uh, it's it's great. And I have to tell you, I, I laughed really hard early this morning as I was watching the news. Having just watched your series and your episode five of Afternoon Delight, there's a big thing on the news now and it's on social media, it's going viral. Um, where some newscaster over in Spain or Europe oh, or something, that, yeah. he's he married, but right? he got caught with a naked woman he's having an affair with walked behind him in the oh zoo. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the language of love. <laughs> and I immediately thought of you guys and the Afternoon <laughs> Delight episode. And I was yeah. like, holy crap. <laughs> See, you guys are ahead of the time here. I'm trying to be. Yeah. You're, yeah that's, that's, an ideal, that's an ideal offshoot of it is hopefully people are experiencing Zoom in ways that makes them think back like, oh, that was like that show. You know, we're trying to touch those those uh, occurrences. How, how did you amass everybody to get them involved in this? Because it's not like you're doing this with one or two people, even though a couple of your episodes are just two or three people. Uh-huh. But you, you've really amassed a bunch of folks here. Bobby, you want to talk to that? Most of them. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's probably yeah. easier than you would think is because all these people are really not doing anything right now, right? <laughs> Most of us don't have any jobs. Uh, so we have a bunch of free time. And they don't have to leave their house, right? We all do it on Zoom, so it's very easy. So we say, hey, can you give us an hour of your time one night? Can we shoot an episode. Like we did one this morning um, with a guy from Australia. So we did it at 9 in the morning, we shot it, and then it was, I think, midnight, you know, down there. So it's yeah. a lot easier than trying to get people in one location, you know, multiple people taking multiple camera shots and different things like that. So it's just it's just more streamlined, I guess. So, and, and, and also, this is Greg, Debbie, and also to Bobby's point is we've worked with the, they're professional actors. So we've, we've worked with these people before, and we know that they have great instincts and improvisational skills. So when we uh, we all had a powwow to see who we were going to bring in, and we added to that pot, and we were confident in their abilities, 
and you know we gave them the option to read over some scripts, tell us what you think, and they were all in on it. In fact, to that point is all of us, all three of us, Debbie, when we put the first, I think it was after the promo or the first episode, we each had our inboxes just start filling <laughs> up with actors that were reaching out to us saying, yeah. we would love a guest spot. Is there anything we can do to work with you guys? Because we, we're very thankful to have a good brand and name. It's just been an outpouring of, of support. Because And the characters that you, ha- that you have are fabulous. Greg, you're hysterical as Turf Maxwell. Um, oh, thank you. <laughs> I, I just get a kick out of watching you trying to wrangle and play authoritarian. And Bobby, you couldn't be any more perfect as the poor hapless Jimmy. It's just fab. <laughs> 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 uh, and you know, I say, uh, you oh, know, I so many kids every time I play a character. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I say that oh, with much love. Life, I have nothing to drop from. <laughs> <laughs> but I, one of the funniest people. Is Angela Petroik is playing Anne, the deadpan face. The she's, I mean, she's just great. She, she she's also in our our series Welcome Home on Amazon Prime too. Ah, uh, yes. She's um she's somebody you don't even really have to direct much because she just brings what you're you're looking for. Yeah, she, she gets it right away. Her mic, you know, so we don't have to worry about that. So I love like uh, calling her back, keep firing her. And the more we the more we film these, a lot of the actors come back with their own character in tow. We don't have to direct much. The writing just it writes itself because of how distinctive they've already become in just a few episodes. The actors have really brought a lot of life to the uh, you know our archetypal office characters that we've we've built for them. It's become they become living, breathing. You know, is this real? <laughs> right. Talk to me about Sheila O'Shea as Fran because she just is like. <laughs> You just sit there and you go, oh, my God. It's like paper. She doesn't know what Zoom is. I mean, that's me. I don't use Zoom. It's like I'm watching her and hilarious. And when you get to the gas leak episode and she starts spraying air freshener, oh, my God. I was not joking when I posted to you guys this morning. It's like I was laughing so hard I almost peed my pants. Uh, Sheila is part uh, I'll let Bobby talk more on his but just a quick backstory on uh, Sheila is part of Amazon or Amazon Prime show Welcome Home Mm -hmm. and she's uh, she's really great you know all those everyone has a background in in theater in some capacity and Sheila also Debbie which is makes it so authentic when we were first shooting I think it was even the promo it was her first time ever using Zoom, uh-huh. and she said, "Let me try to figure it out." And we said, "No, don't. Nah, just roll it. Just go. Yeah. yeah, do it live. Do it live." <laughs> yeah. Are you doing any rehearsal time for any of this, or are you just going cold? When we when we first log in, uh, we get everybody together. We kind of catch up, everybody field questions, and then yeah, we do a couple of uh, short rehearsals. We read through a few times. Uh, sometimes adding new jokes, uh, taking away things that aren't working, and, and then we move on from there with the with the recordings. Mm-hmm. I yeah. really, I think you need to get an actual water cooler or a water jug and not a picture, and just make that a permanent fixture. <laughs> oh, that's great. Gather around that every time. <laughs> I mean that. And just keep it there as a permanent fixture. That's great. <laughs> funny start, start peppering in some office props. Yes. Yeah. 
the water cooler's got to sign in every time. Kind of hands up. Here you come. See, I, th I think that would be hilarious to start adding in. Just make sure that you have individual cameras on office props. Oh, yeah. And make the office start. The office is starting to migrate and come alive, and come alive because it is quarantined as well. That's a pretty interesting idea. The that is making itself, you know, a coffee pot, making its own coffee. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, you know, you know, it'd be funny though. Hey, Deb, thanks for the idea. That's pretty funny because every time someone brings up coffee or the water cooler, it just pans to it and it's just silent for like three seconds. Yeah. And then it goes back to the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> See, I would love to see that. And this is so fun. You keep these so short. But the thing is, they're so short, you want to binge all of them. I finished watching all six episodes, and I wanted more. Oh, great. Well, there's plenty more coming, so. Yeah. You, you know, yeah, I wanted... At least one to two out every week. I These are just... They're fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. You know, how are you how are you going about with who's handling things like actually shooting the zoom the actual computer top that has all of the zoom images on it are you doing any uh, post-production editing anything like that logistically how are you doing this yeah um, yeah sure uh, yeah Bobby Bobby records on his end mm -hmm. uh, he's, he just has a better connection than I do and sends it over to me, and uh, I I segment each square pretty much uh, as its own screen, and then I edit just like I would like a multi-screen kind of studio environment, you mm -hmm. know, cut to camera B, cut to camera two, two shot, um, and just go with the flow of the piece. Um, we, we go through a few drafts, and then we put the, put the piece out that we think tells the strongest story. Mm -hmm. So it's 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 pretty self-explanatory, because the actors, it's a, it's a seamless um, performance straight through, but it doesn't hurt to... Every once in a while, cut to the close-ups or right. reaction shots. Reaction. Yeah. yeah. I think the only real post-production we do is, you know, some sound effects, maybe a little music, and we might end up adding, you know, some like special effects at some point. But couple couple farts here and there. Yeah. Dude. <laughs> Amp it up a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, at least part you... episode. That was the problem. <laughs> God help us. <laughs> Tell, tell me about episodes. Tell me about episode six, and your high maintenance client, Mr. Verhoeven. That is just hysterical, especially when he gets up from the chair and he's holding an AK forty-seven, and then we get the dog. Um, whose brainchild was this episode? Because I just thought that was over the top, ridiculum, fabulous. Yeah, that call with a dog was amazing. I thought. Yeah, I was I wasn't expecting it when I saw it. I'm like, holy, that was great. <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, I I've known Colin. He's the actor for a while. Uh, I think everyone here has. And just we were thinking about special guests, and I thought of him, so I, I kind of wrote that character for him, knowing what he could do. And he took it to the eleventh level after after that. Oh my god, um, Mike! It's it just. <laughs> I mean, he is hysterical, and it's, what's funny is Colin. He has this kind of younger Wayne Newton look about him. Younger Wayne Newton? Yes. <laughs> I thought of that. It's hilarious. I'll just tell him that. I'll tell him that. Where do you see quarantine going? How long do you see yourself continuing this since everybody's talking about the new normal may become doing more Zoom things? Of, uh, of course, if all Zoom conferences are like these, God help us all from a business <laughs> standpoint. 
especially if you're trying to, you know, do marketing for Pizzeria Pronto with some guy from Chassamusets. Um, you know, where do you see quarantine going? What do you think, guys? Well, this is Greg. I, you know, this is this has been my thought. We, we each have individual thoughts, but with the same common uh, thread that we really wanted to uh, stay creative. We we didn't let you know we walked out the shift with Corona, but we wanted to stay creative. We wanted to stay positive. We wanted to create, and we also wanted to inspire. So we also wanted to build up. You know, quite honestly, uh, Debbie, also build up our resume. I mean, we we have a we each have almost twenty years in the business. Mm-hmm. Uh, each and we uh, we like being co-creative being around positive people and also build it as a resume of sort to moving forward to say look we didn't lay down we wanted to be at the forefront in the business in creativity and uh, hopefully it can lead it can lead us as a whole and even individually to different projects and to keep creating and, and doing good uh, for the business and the world and even, even as a story, and from the story standpoint of quarantine itself, before I pitched it to them, I kind of envisioned an ending anyway because, you know, we're, we're going to be in quarantine for a while, I guess, but not forever. So obviously at some point it won't be as relevant, but I think the humor can still survive. If not, I do have a um, planned ending I pitched to them that we'll see if we ever get to. <laughs> How many episodes do you see per season? Because, you know, you've called this season one. Six episodes are available now. I want at least 60 more, but, you know, that's that's me. <laughs> so of course, how many do you have on the, uh, on the docket, Mike? How many do we have on the docket right now written? Uh, I think we have 15 to 16 more right now written. Uh, we're taping two more tonight and two next week. Yeah, we're just constantly writing more stuff, so I mean, yeah. there's no limit to it, but we'll see how things change in the next month or two, I guess. You know, how long does it how long does it take you, Mike, to do an edit on each episode once it's done? Once Bobby sends it to you? Uh, I don't know. Do I tell him how the sausage made here? <laughs> uh, I, oh, I don't think it, yeah, it doesn't take you long. Uh, the the Chasmusis episode... Uh, with all those people involved in the one today also that we filmed that has a lot of people and moving parts takes about um, I'd say I'd say it's done within the day Mm -hmm. Um, a few hours here and there and and it's done Uh, plus you know uh, review passes of the rough cuts but um, not long it's pretty it's a pretty economical um, uh, structure we have here Mm -hmm. short episodes I hope episodes of less people it's going to be easier to edit yeah yeah and that was the hilarity of Bobby Chase, Greg Idala, and Mike Feuerstein talking about quarantine. Um, it's, and as a lot of you can tell, that this is not the kind of interview that would translate really well into print copy. Um, there is some more. I will undoubtedly have that up on BehindTheLensOnline.net uh, as uh, possibly on our YouTube channel as well. But that is, this is it for our expanded edition today. The uh, Comedy Force was definitely with us on Star Wars Day, May the 4th. So next week, we've got Jonas, Jonathan Smith, writer-director Jonathan Smith is here to uh, talk about Batshit Bride. 
Uh, our regular listeners, if you caught up with us a few weeks ago, you heard Chad Miller on, who is in the film, talking about the film. Um, so Jonathan will now give us the whole scoop on the creation and making of. So that is all the time we have today. If you want to hear more, read more, see more, BehindTheLensOnline.net. Uh, plus other print and online publications in the U.S. and abroad. New content coming out every week. Uh, new interviews being done every day, which of course then takes time to get them out and about uh, to various outlets. But until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. <laughs>